Cape Talk. Plan B. Sorry, Rebecca, you don't normally foss- <laughs> you don't normally socialise with wicked old fossils, but we inflict it on you every Thursday. How are you? I'm well. I just wish you hadn't read that note I just passed you on air. <laughs> <laughs> When's your book coming out? My book is coming out in May, John, and I'll be sure to remind you to punt it relentlessly in the weeks <laughs> leading up to there. Don't, don't worry. I won't need any reminding. I'll need no reminding at all. I'm sure I shall punt it, punt it relentlessly of my own volition. <laughs> You have been interested in something that I wasn't aware about until I became aware of your interest in it. <laughs> the United <laughs> Nations, what's it called? The Commission on the Status of Women, which is happening this week in New York, which, as you say, has been completely uncovered, as I can see, by South African media, despite the fact that we have at least two of our government bigwigs there. And um, <clears throat> I was interested to see what they had been saying on our behalf in New York, especially given that we haven't heard about it. And the two people there are the Statistician General, Pali Lehochler, and uh, the Social Development Minister, Batabile Dlamini. And there's good and there's bad, John. And the bad comes from the Statistician General. I watched a little web clip of a session after being tipped off to it, a session he was in at the UN Commission, where he appeared in a... It was a panel on gender statistics. So he was talking about... I don't know, was South Africa's modelling on that kind of thing and what the statistics tell us about gender equality in South Africa and so on. But the strange thing was that he made repeated reference to the masculinization of women, John. And if you know what this means, you're, you're cleverer than I am. He said, for instance, he started off by saying, well, let's look at who, who is oppressed by gender inequality. It's largely women and there's it's through sexual abuse human trafficking and so forth and then he said the beneficiaries of gender oppression are largely men and pimps patriarchal systems sadists and sexist and masculinized women what on earth does that mean john masculine mass i can't even say it masculinized women are the beneficiaries of gender oppression so women who are like men are you following? No, I'm not. I'm, he, com- I'm, cle- I'm completely lost. He then went on to say that the levers of gender oppression are the global machinery of capital, entrenched patriarchal culture, and the masculinization of women. I, I I mean, just, if, he, if he took out those references to the masculinization of women, what he would be saying would be largely unexceptional. Perf- perfectly acceptable, which is why I do not understand what on earth he was getting at. What do you think he means? You've had more time to ponder it than I. There's very little contextual evidence. I'm not giving a, this, this, you know, devoid of context presentation. This is what he said. But I think in the most sort of um, empathetic reading, what he's saying is that some women are collaborators with patriarchy. Is that perhaps what he means? That they're masculinized? I mean, when that, that sort of concept of the ball breaker woman, the woman who gets into the boardroom and behaves just like a man, that that kind of woman is a progenitor and a beneficiary of gender oppression. Is that Something what he's saying? like that. I mean, to me, the phrase masculinized women just makes you think of an East German weightlifter in the Olympics or something. I don't, I mean, I... I Please don't I, I make me think of an East German weightlifter in the Olympics. <laughs> the good news is that the social development minister, who I'm rapidly becoming a big fan of, gave a really great speech. And um, Lamini has in the past made a number of great speeches, actually, particularly on the subject of women's rep- re- reproductive rights. She's been really outspoken about in a way that is extremely uncommon for people in her position and for ANC ministers. She condemned the declaration passed at the UN's Commission on the Status of Women for not once even 
mentioning the term sexual and reproductive health because, quote, some delegations feel that this is too controversial. And she said, is it really controversy to save the lives of women through providing them with needed services? What is controversial is when we let the lives of women perish from preventable diseases and when a global gathering dedicated to advance the rights of women shies away from confronting the challenges of women. I mean, I think that was a really powerful statement. And Who's she referring to, Rebecca? I think that she might have been referring to delegations from Africa in particular, in particular because she did go on to, 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 to pinpoint African leaders as needing to take the initiative in changing the agenda. But I assume she was referring basically to, to um, more conservative delegates from all over. I mean, it is astonishing that in a commission on the status of women, they would not discuss matters like abortion or sexual rights or reproductive rights. So... And were, were official reasons given or was it glossed over as to why those subjects were not discussed? I, 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 I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure her reading is right here, that it must be simply because it is controversial because I really can't see a practical reason for leaving that out. So big ups to Minister Lamini, in my opinion. And you have just been reading John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. A great book, John. Have you, been, have you, have you, have you seen mention of it? It's been sort of... I read the review the that moment. you sent me. I know who John Ronson is, but I, I did, didn't know. I haven't seen this book, no. He, it's just been released in South Africa. John Ronson's this great English journalist and documentarist, and he writes these non-fiction accounts, which are often very funny, as well as being extremely perceptive. And his latest book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it's a really revealing read, because, especially for those of us who are active on social media, because it's basically about the incredible cruelty of social media, which is not news to us. But I think the way he breaks it down is absolutely startling. His claim is that we're living through what he calls a great renaissance of public shaming through the internet, but that um, its current incarnation is more extreme even than in, say, 18th century New England, that the kind of punishments doled out there don't even equate when it comes down well, to people People were having, literally burnt then. People were burnt, but not for, not. The, same, for the same kinds of offences, such as lying or plagiarism, that kind of thing, whatever its, its manifestation would have been there. They didn't have their entire lives destroyed, their livelihoods, etc. And what he's saying well, is... When you burnt at the stake, you're kind of having your life and your livelihood destroyed, aren't but you? But that wasn't the punishment for these kind of transgressions. Oh. That's what I'm saying. For these kinds of transgressions now, your life is destroyed. Jonah Lira, the American journalist who self-plagiarized and who invented a few quotes, I mean, his life and career have been destroyed. He lists a number of other people. Um, Justine Sacco, who's the notorious American PR woman, who tweeted that she was coming to Africa and hoped she didn't get AIDS, but of course she wouldn't because she was white. And um, it's what he says is that nobody re- perhaps realizes that their individual actions just contribute to this absolute deluge. He says, when shamings are delivered like remotely administered drone strikes, nobody needs to think about how ferocious our power might be. So you just tweet your disapproval with an individual who's tweeted something offensive, and you don't realize that in its totality, it amounts to pretty much the destruction of someone's life in terms of losing jobs, losing their reputation. And the real thing is that he says that in the olden days, when we had these public shamings, you still had the possibility of redemption afterwards. You could rebuild your life. But thanks to Google... I mean, things are very difficult. You know, I was um, looking, for instance, at Zelda Lacrancy's Google profile now just before I came on air because I was interested to see. It is now almost entirely dominated the first page by reference to her racist tweets. I mean, it's just as if her history with Mandela is virtually erased from her web presence in that superficial search. And I think that's really scary. And I say that as someone who's often part of Twitter lynch mobs. There's nothing I like more than a good public shaming on Twitter. But when you read a book like that... 
I mean, it's part- as somebody who's not active at all on social media. Why? And it's a genuine question. Why? Why do you so? F- glibly say there's nothing I like more than being part of a lynch mob on Twitter. Well, there's a sort of collective insanity that goes along with it. I think in the, I mean, the real, you know, psyche of the mob comes to play. But I mean, there's a sense of the democratization of hierarchy, certainly. So the sense that you're bringing down someone powerful. And, you know, I still feel this when it's like a brand or a, a big corporation or a terrible sleazy tabloid or something there's a real satisfaction in being like oh you thought you could get away with this look at us the common man women we've come to tell you that that is not okay and you're gonna have to apologize and be shamed the the, when it comes to targeting individuals though who've transgressed in relatively minor ways and all the people he mentions in his book have i mean that's a bit more difficult it's i guess it's a sense of you thought you could get away with this but you can't it's a sense of wanting to prove your own liberal credentials or your that, that that you're the most right on person in the house and the way to do that is by you know actively seeking the most uncharitable interpretation of someone else's words it's a depressing scene <laughs> it both depresses you and enthralls you <laughs> yes in exactly equal measure. which is exactly why john ronson's book is so fascinating i'd recommend it and and you you draw you draw an, not an analogy you draw a link between well, you brought Helen Zilla into the conversation. I did because I think the, Helen Zilla's behaviour on Twitter sometimes amounts to giving journalists, in particular, public shaming. She's done it a number of times. Karine Duplessis, for instance, from City Press, was the victim of one of these shamings. And but some people might say that Helen Zilla herself often gets shamed as well. For instance, she's been subject to a huge amount of abuse on Twitter this week for the decision to cancel the Cape Times subscription. Abuse or disagreement? I mean, it's disagreement which often is couched as abuse. Yes, and some of it is just vitriol. I mean, Helen Zilla often just gets vitriol. And I think the problem is sort of to do with people's perceptions of power, because it's my impression that Helen Zilla thinks, for instance, that journalists have a lot of power. This is why she thinks it's okay to take on journalists in a certain way, because she's like, you have this influential public platform and you're dispensing what she considers to be untruths about various things. Whereas for individual journalists, um, it's the opposite. It's Helen Zilla runs a government, you know, she has 600,000 Twitter followers. It's so clear that she is the one in the position of power who is seen to be doing the shaming and the bullying. It's just interesting to me because I think that those two sides aren't meeting at all. The is she a, is she a bully? You because, know, I mean, her, her view seems to be because I mean, again, it's, it's um, I don't, I'm not on social media, and so I only see this when it gets into more traditional media. And her attitude seems to be, all I'm doing is giving back what I'm getting. And if you think that because I'm the premier of the Western Cape, I should simply roll over and ignore what's being said about me, think again. This is the nature of the medium. If you're going to use it that way, so am I. What the hell are you complaining about? I mean, for a start, I just think that's incredibly inadvisable behavior for a politician. There is a difference between an elected political representative and a a journalist. I mean, quite obviously, it seems to me. And, you know, that behavior, she might think it's quid pro quo, quo, but certainly surely isn't sensible. But to answer your question of is Helen Zilla a bully, I mean, I've never experienced any bullying behavior, but I know a number of journalists who have been on the receiving end of what I would call akin to bullying, which is to say attempts at intimidation, I think. So early morning, very early morning phone calls, screaming at high volume about... Screaming at high volume. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard this from a number of journalists. And, you know, there's 
controversy of this this week because people say, ah, oh, get over it. Everyone gets shouted at. It's just the line of work. But I, th- I think the issue here is that the DA does present itself as being sort of anti-ANC when it comes to media intimidation and um, freedom of speech and, and that sort of thing. And the impression I'm left with certainly is that, you know, the DA wants a pro-DA press in exactly the same way as the ANC. Okay. Um, According to Jill, masculinization of women means women who try and replace men in matters that they are useless at, i.e. war, pilots, sea captains, etc. I see. How how fascinating. Now we know. Are you going to start a Twitter (laughs) lynch mob against against Jill? I, I, I won't, I won't. Okay. Statue, road statue, thoughts on it, uh, thoughts flowing from it? Thoughts flowing from it. Um, well, I was thinking about... Uh, the, I mean, I I think that the road statue should have been gone a long time ago, or at least problematized in some way. But I was thinking about what would happen if they took it down and and particularly what they would replace it with. And it seemed so entirely likely that if they took roads down, what would replace it would be... Uh, a, a struggle here, but it would probably be someone like Mandela or Biko or Tambo or Lutuli, in other words, a man. And I started thinking about the memorialization of, in particular, female struggle heroes in statues, I mean, around South Africa. And um, I was asking uh, people on Twitter and so forth to, to send me examples of these. And the truth is, John, that I think there is a major discrepancy in the way that women are memorialized in this country and the way that, that men are. I mean, this when it comes to um, figures from white minority rule, we do have female statues. So, for instance, we have Jan van Riebeck's wife. There's a strange statue called the Karlfurt Frau in the Drakensberg, which commemorates a woman who said she'd rather trek barefoot than live under English rule. Um, there are numerous statues of Queen Victoria. There's, this, there's um, you know, the... Surely a statue to Emily Hobhouse somewhere. Well, Emily Hobhouse is commemorated, I think, in the Women's Monument in Bloemfontein. I think she sketched it or something. But what, I, what I've found, sort of, and I'm open to correction from your listeners, is that monuments to women in this country either tend to be collective, right? So the Women's Monument in Bloemfontein commemorates 27,000 women until all in one go, which is handy. And then the only post-apartheid memorial to women's contribution to the struggle is the monument to the women of South Africa at the Union Buildings, which is, first of all, incredibly hard to get to because security at the Union Buildings is so hard and also consists of, I mean, there's stairs, etc. But what it essentially is is a grinding stone. That is the monument. So obviously that has also caused controversy because it's not heroic. You know, male, the, the statues of male struggle heroes are... You know, they're made from bronze or granite and they're these imposing heroic figures. What we get for women is this grinding stone. And people, you know, I think rightly to some degree said, isn't this also just reinforcing the idea that women's labor is domestic? The, I mean, there are, I found, some memorials to struggle, to female struggle figures around Cape Town, but they tend overwhelmingly to be very abstract. So I don't know if you know that there's a memorial to Sissy Gould in the center of town somewhere around Long Market. And it just consists of 17 bollards, which represent the 17 laws that she passed when she was the first black woman allowed into local government. And people sort of sit on them. And, you know, if you pass them, you wouldn't even be aware of what they were. Um, There's an Olive Shriner Memorial in Cork Bay, but it's a water feature with crosses in it. 
and there's an Ingrid Yonker memorial. That's next to, that's across the road from uh, from the cafe and the Dalebrook Pool. It's just next to the where you go under the railway to get to the Dalebrook Pool. That's okay, that I hadn't even seen it. There's an Ingrid Yonker memorial also in Gordon's Bay, which is a plinth with a tricycle. So these very sort of abstract representations, and if you weren't studying them closely, I mean, you'd barely know what they were, what they stood for, as opposed to these heroic statues of Mandela, Lutuli, you know, in bronze, where they're just these dudes standing there. And it just makes me wonder, why aren't there more representative um, individual statues of female struggle heroes? And the only one I've been able to, to think of, in fact, the only few. In Kimberley, apparently, there is a statue of the trade unionist Francis Bard, which is a statue of Francis Bard. Um, there is now, obviously, outside Parliament, Albertina Sicilia is pictured, but with her husband, Walter. And in Athlone, there is a statue of Colleen Williams and Robert Waterwich, who were the MK activists who died in a limpet mine explosion. They were active around Athlone. Beyond that, though, I'm, I really struggle to find examples of statues. Who would you like to see? Particularly, Victoria Mkenge, Charlotte McLeake, I mean, Lillian Ngoy, Helen First, Helen Joseph, sorry, Ruth First. I mean, there aren't any shortage of, of options. And to me, it would be a wonderful sign if, if the road statue were to go, if it weren't just to be replaced with another man. I think it would make a powerful statement if it also were to be replaced with a statue of a woman. Because not only did he not want um, black people on the university for which he was bequeathing the ground, he also wanted only a very small smattering of women doing only a very select group of diplomas which didn't threaten masculine hegemony in any way. So it might be quite interesting to have him in perpetual conversation with a woman. Quite, quite, John. With a black that's woman. true. Oh. And beyond that, it would go some way to addressing what seems to be this effacing of female involvement in struggle through these political memorials. Shaheen has given us a call from Kenilworth. Hello, Shaheen. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it may not be statues, but maybe um, it, it still memorializes and somewhere recognizes the contribution of struggle women. So back in 2003-2004, we decided to name all our new fishery patrol vessels after struggle heroes and 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 black women, the Sarah Bartman, which is our offshore patrol vessel. Unfortunately, she no longer works. Uh, the Victoria Nenge also doesn't work. Uh, the Ruth First and the Lillian Ngoy. Please tell me they work. Almost none of them go to sea anymore. Oh, yeah. They it. <sighs> okay. So maybe what we could do is uh, if, if the... Uh, body and staff elect to remove uh, roads is actually replace um, his uh, statue with Sissy Gould. I mean, she. I think she was the first uh, black woman to get a degree from mm. UCT. Absolutely, I think that's a great, mm. a great choice. Shaheen, thank you very much for that. Uh, Chris tells me. From Cork Bay, that the Olive Shriner Memorial there has been damaged by the elements, the roadwork teams and the general public. It is a mess and it may as well be removed. When institutions install these memorials, they should make sure they have a maintenance budget, which is, I mean, it's another aspect of an ongoing conversation. That's true. And I believe the Sissy Gould Memorial that I mentioned in the centre of town is also in very poor condition, which is sad, as, as your listener says. Why bother? Yeah, probably all memorials, except for a select political elite few, are in pretty shoddy condition. Mm. Because we're, we're great at 
uh, we, we're great at bright bursts of ideas, but less great at the hard work needed to keep those mm. bright ideas burning forever. Well, the one thing that'll be interesting to see, John, is the massive heritage park being built by Dali Tum- Tumbo that's going to consist of, you know, hundreds of huge statues. Tambo. Of, oh. <laughs> of struggle heroes, which will apparently include women. But, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing that because it sounds sort of bizarre in isolation, just the idea of this park with these striding figures. It could be very powerful. It could also be very frightening to be stuck there at night. And um, Ron, in Mowbray, you have another monument to a female here, heroine? Yes, good afternoon, John. I was just wondering, love the conversation, and I have a, a favourite, favourite monument. I, I'm a tour guide, so I do know a lot of obscure little things. Does anybody there in the studio know about the White Lady in Durban? The White Lady in? Durban. Nope. No. You don't? No. Well, let me try and keep it as brief as possible. During the Second World War, Durban was a major port of call for troop ships traveling from the European theater through to the uh, Far East, where these Allied servicemen, of course, were going to risk their lives. And there was a lady called um, Perla Gibson, and uh, she was an opera singer of some talent, and uh, she was a uh, daughter of a wealthy Durban family, and her contribution to the war effort was to dress herself all in white and take a megaphone and go and stand on the end of the breakwater in Durban and sing to the troop ships as they came in and out. She would sing hymns, you know, like Abide With Me and patriotic songs, uh, well, obviously God Save the King and There'll Be Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover, that kind of thing. And she was seen and heard by thousands of Allied servicemen. And in later years, first of all, they put up a plaque to the white lady, and that is on the end of the breakwater. And then later on, men of the Royal Navy got together and subscribed for a statue of hers, which stands outside the ocean terminal in Durban. So she's not a major struggle hero, but it's such a wonderful human Mm. story, I thought everybody should know about it. Thank you very much, Ron. Heather in the City Bowl, hello. Hi, John. Thanks for taking my call. John, I just wondered if I offered to pay, can I actually have the uh, pay to remove it, the Queen of uh, Victoria statue at the top of Adley Street? I'll, I'll pass on your <laughs> offer to Auntie Pat. Okay, and if and I'm Auntie not being Helen. very greedy, I'd love the Lady Anne Bath. I'll also pay to take that away. Uh, So you you take it away in the sense of keep it for your own private delectation. Yeah, yeah. Why do you like the Queen? I understand the Lady Anne Bath, uh, Barnard Bath, but why the Queen Victoria statue? Why do you like that so much? Because she reminds me a lot of my mother. Oh. Okay. Was she also not amused very often, your mother? Yeah, I know. Very. Mm. (laughs) Thank you very much. Some of those vessels that Shaheen was telling us about uh, says that uh, somebody says in an SMS that they were taken out of commission by a woman. Ah. Aunt, Auntie Tina Dumont Pedersen. Her. Yeah. France is filled with stunning female statues, so beautiful. Um, yeah, I haven't travelled enough in France to know the truth or otherwise of that. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks, John. We will talk about this and that again next Thursday after half past three.